Open your Bibles with me really quickly to the book of First Peter. And what a wonderful passage, and we sung songs this morning dealing with victory in Christ or this late afternoon. Can you tell I'm used to preaching on Sunday mornings? <laughs> First Peter chapter 2, I want to start reading at verse 21. Where the scriptures read, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, whose suffering he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to keep, um, excuse me, to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Today I do want to speak from a title, The Suffering, Sinlessness, and Sacrifice of Christ. This passage is surrounding persecution. Persecution of a Roman emperor, Nero. It had me thinking about persecution in America, which really doesn't truly exist, does it? But throughout the world could be found that one in eight people are being persecuted as we speak. That is roughly about 340 million people are being persecuted. And of course, when you're preaching about or speaking about persecution, some of us, maybe even in our victimization, want to gather thoughts so that we have been persecuted and are being persecuted. Let me tell you what persecution is not. Persecution is not family drama. <laughs> because someone doesn't like you, you don't like them. Persecution is not dealing with an employee who does not want to go to lunch with you. Maybe your breath is, well, never mind. Persecution is not that employer who would not give you a raise because you thought that you deserved one. And certainly one of our favorites as preachers, persecution is not you being cut off while you're driving. I submit to you today that the people or the Christians here in Rome were suffering real persecution. They were suffering a great deal of persecution anguish and trial. The whole point in which Peter is writing is that while you are suffering and while you are afflicted in life, that you ought to still look to the example of Jesus Christ and live a glorious life, right? A God-honoring life 
that you ought to still, in spite of unfair treatment, that you ought to look towards the cross and live victoriously. That is, you ought to watch your behavior. That's for the ones of us who have formulated words and when we didn't get that parking spot. We've formulated words that we've conjured up that are beyond comprehension. Church today, the writer Peter is making sure that a people who are afflicted, a people who are suffering, keep their eyes on Jesus Christ, on his suffering, on his sinlessness, on his sacrifice. And by his example, they should learn and know how to live. So our text gives us that very outline, suffering, sinlessness, sacrifice. Let's look at the first one in verse 21, his suffering. For the text says, for you have been called for the purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You've been called for this purpose. Oh, television evangelists who are here today may not like that one. False teachers won't like this one, that you have been called. There's an effectual call that went out to draw you to salvation. And ultimately, the scripture is telling us, Peter is telling the the, the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, that you've been called to also suffer. If you've been called to a life and a victorious life it is in Christ, then you too have been called to suffer in Christ. And we have the teaching of Christ, don't we? Who has already told us this would be the case in John chapter 15. He told us about the world, that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it what? If the world persecutes you, know that it persecuted me before it Persecuted you. Help me preach this. The world is satanic. It is energized by the devil. It is supposed to be evil. Persecution is supposed to happen. Suffering is supposed to happen. What typical Christians, and unfortunately I will say this, the typical Christian who struggles will not look towards the cross. Oftentimes, and see the suffering of our beloved Savior and see his sinlessness. Instead, we do what? Retaliate. But in light of the unfair suffering and the ill treatment that is found here in the text, he says, that is, Peter says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Christ left the example of how we should live victoriously as Christians. Amen? So the perfect example, the most perfect example that we will ever have is found in Jesus Christ. 
is found in the suffering of our Lord. He says, Christ also suffered for you. He left an example of how we should live a glorifying life to God. I love the word example here. And not to shed too much, but it means writing under. And it carries the idea of children writing under their parents. You know how you're trying to teach your child to write letters or words, and so you write and they write under that. They are following or imitating that example. What he says here by example and follow is that there should be a close connection, a close imitation, a close following of Jesus Christ as to how to live in the midst of ill treatment. How we ought to live is seen in the example of Jesus Christ. And certainly it is seen in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As the Gospels illustrate that he was sought after. He was pursued. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was made fun of. They sought his destruction. He was whipped. He was beaten for our sins and our transgressions. He is the example of how we ought to live because his character, it drew people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, didn't it? It drew people, unregenerate, unrepentant people were drawn by the character of and the words of Jesus Christ. Certainly we see the example when, with the first Christians in the book of Acts. They were ridiculed, mocked, in prison, made martyrs. That is, they suffered and died for the faith. What example did they have to look to? Jesus Christ. They look towards the cross, and this is how the Christians in Acts ultimately fulfilled the Great Commission. This is how the Christians in Acts ultimately went out and shared the gospel, and the gospel by the end of the book of Acts reached Rome because of their Christian character in spite of the ill treatment. The character was magnetizing and the gospel spread to where the church was added to daily. And it's certainly in this passage of Peter, the gospel message had reached Rome for even Peter is writing to Christians in Rome because the gospel message went forward and his message is behavior in the midst of this ill or unfair treatment. Christians historically followed this example. Even at the completion of scripture in the third century, in the, when you study history of the Roman Empire and Christian persecution during that time, there was increasing polytheistic worship. That is the worship of multiple gods. The Christians there were heavily persecuted. Do you know it's something about their behavior that caused 
the outpour of the gospel message, so much so that even while they were being persecuted, even while they were offended, even though they were made mockery of, the gospel message went forward. It was heralded. It was proclaimed. And even at that time, the message was magnetizing. And people saw their testimony of faith. And therefore, there was an increase of Christianity. Certainly today, this is what is expected. If the first Christians can do it, if we could look towards Christ, if the Christians in the third century can do it, and then certainly you and I could look towards the cross and see our perfect Savior dying on the cross, and you and I could say to ourselves, if he died in humility, if he died never hurling an insult, then certainly I don't have to hurl insults when I'm wrongly accused. I could behave myself. I could live as a Christian should live. Following his example and closely following his example. This is the expectation of Christians today. For in verse 16, he says, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in his name. You're You are not ashamed. There is no shame in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no shame in heralding the gospel of Christ. There is no shame that we have been saved. But the Christian should go out and live his life by the example of Jesus Christ. What example? Point number two, his sinlessness. In verse 22, verse 23 Peter supplies for them the gospel of Christ in talking about the sinlessness of Christ. He says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He did what, church? Uttered no, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The passage, of course, is an allusion to Isaiah 53, verse 9. It's an allusion to what Isaiah had a vision about concerning the Messiah. It's a prophecy of the Messiah and his sinless nature. In three decades of the life of Christ, he had never sinned. In his life, He had never sinned. And certainly Peter is writing as one who can testify to his sinless life. If he is God, as he claims, and God is holy and perfect, then he, as the son of God, has to be sinless. If I'm to have a savior, one who is taking my place, then he would have to. To be sinless. Certainly Christ was perfectly righteous. Perfectly holy. Never harbored anger. Never hurled an insult. No deceit, the scripture says, was found. No craftiness, no lie. And yes, even a white lie is a... To sum it all up, he was obedient 
to the law. He loved God with all of his heart, his mind, and his soul. And so therefore, he was the spotless, sinless lamb of God. And while reviled, he never reviled in return. That is, while he was verbally abused, while he was uh, um, uh, vilified, while he was insulted, he never uttered a threat. How would we do with that? Oh, you going to vilify me? I only, I only have that much time. Let's. We, we see in the life of his earthly ministry that he never uttered in, in a threat. He, he's fleeing. He's escaping crowds who seek his, his, his death. He never uttered a threat. Finally, it was time to die. Jesus was arrested. The Roman cohort came for him. Officers, the chief priests, Sadducees, and of course, we just read John chapter 18. Judas was among them. He never, this is the time, right? And when we're talking about the Roman cohort, we're talking about between 200 and 100 men. 200, excuse me, and 1,000 men came for him. If ever a time to hurl a threat, he never did. The Bible is clear that he never uttered a single word of complaint. He never murmured and complained about his state. Even in the life before the government, the government is messing with me. Even in his life before the government, the chief priests and elders brought him before Pontius Pilate. His wife, Pilate's wife, sent him a message. Have nothing to do with that innocent man. Of course, you know the story. Pilate asked the crowd, what shall I do with him? And they yelled out, crucify him. Pilate said, but I find no fault in this man. He's done nothing wrong. They yelled even louder, even over him, crucify him. So because of political, a political agenda, Pilate took him, flogged him, and crucified him. He had, even then, while under this duress, never spoke a threat. He endured it. The example is to look at the forbearance of our Christ. It's to look at the patience of our Christ, that while suffering, he did not hurl a threat. While persecuted, he never murmured. He never complained. But you know what he did do? Oh, this is the example, church. You know what he did do? The Bible here says, and Peter writes to them, that he entrusted himself 
to who to, to him who judges righteously. In other words, he entrusted his life to God. He didn't retaliate with his enemies because he entrusted that the sovereign God, the holy and righteous judge God would do what he needs to do with even his enemies. He entrusted the sovereign and righteous judge to handle his matters. Not an insult, not a retaliation. No threat, no profane and new vocabulary. When treated unfairly, he simply shows you, he shows me, he shows Christians in Rome how we ought to live. We do not have to retaliate because there are scriptures like Revelation chapter 20. That shows us God's vengeance. It shows us the avenger himself. Oh, it's not just the movie. That God is the avenger. That vengeance belongs to God. That he himself is the holy and righteous judge. He himself is looking upon the hearts of man and determining if their name belongs in heaven for all of eternity. For if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will be judged for their deeds and thrown into eternal fire. So what can you do in retaliation that God cannot do? Who are we to retaliate when Jesus Christ didn't even retaliate? Who are we to speak up with words, invented evil words, when it was our sins that put our Messiah on the cross? Who are you? And trust, trust God with your life. Trust God with your enemies. Trust God when you are wronged. Trust God when you are ill-treated or unfairly treated. We trust in God. We don't retaliate. But then looking at point number three, his sacrifice. Again, he says in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is an allusion of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 through 5. He bore our sins. Scripture portrays us as sinners and the life of Christ as sinless. And with that backdrop, Someone had to sacrifice. Someone had to die so that we could inherit eternal life. We were born as enemies. We were born as rebels. We were born unholy. I know that you were on your way singing holy songs of Zion and thought that you were born this way. We were born deserving of the wrath 
of God. But our Lord bore our sins in his body on the cross. And doctrine is called substitutionary atonement. It speaks of Jesus dying and substituting for sinners. That he took our place. Romans 6.23 tells us that there's a penalty for our sin. And that penalty is death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. It was Jesus Christ who took our place. That death on the cross, beloved, that should have been us. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, that should have been us. If we backtrack the ridicule that he took, that should have been us. The mockery that he took, that should have been us. The flogging that he took, the beating, the being spit in the face, that should have been us. It should have been us pinned to that old, rugged, nasty, dirty cross. It should have been us. He took our place so that we wouldn't have to die. He who was sinless was seen as guilty. He who had never done or performed a sinful act in his life was seen as a guilty man. Thank God for being God. Let me just say this. The the guy sung, and I don't know his name, forgive me, he sung today, I don't know why Jesus loved me. That's a question we really should be asking ourselves every day of our lives as we know the sins that we have embarked upon and the journey of sin that we have lavished in. Church, I really, truly don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he even cares. I don't know why the man sacrificed his life for me, but I'm glad that he did. That's what the song said. I'm glad that he did. He became sin for us. And in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in order for us to live in righteousness, in order for us to become dead to our sin. The penalty of our sin is death to become dead to our sin and to live in righteousness. He had to become a dead man. He had to bore our sins. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that his innocence didn't put him on the cross? That our sins put him on the cross? Do you truly believe that you are a sinner? 
Do you not believe? Do you know that you are a sinner? And you deserve the wrath of God. You deserve punishment. You deserve judgment. But I don't know why. I don't know why. He cares. I don't know why. Thank God for being a God of love. Amen. He says, ultimately, for you were continually straying like sheep. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I'm so glad. Isaiah 53, 6. Again, this is an allusion to that passage. And let me say this. I'm so glad that Peter chose to speak like this. Don't we love the inerrancy of Scripture? Don't we love the way that it is shaped and formed? I love how he starts off with their state and reminding them how to live victoriously. He starts off with their state, or their previous state, and then he journeys into their current state. Oh, I love that. I don't know about you, maybe you're not like, you know, maybe you're not as holy as me. I, I just love that. <laughs> he says, for you were continually straying like sheep. That was your previous state. And often the authors do that, don't they? Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says the same thing, right? You were once dead in your sins. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, children of disobedience. You were a child of wrath, a child deserving of the wrath of God. This is who you were. But then there's an interjection, but God is rich in mercy because by his great love, he loved us. There's an interjection. Look, look, look. Be quiet. He does. I don't have a lot of time. He does the same thing here. You were continually straying like sheep, right? But then there's a but, right? Ooh, I'm excited about the but. I'm sorry. But there's a but. He says, but you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Look at this. You were straying like sheep. You were out there in danger. You were in spiritual danger. You were not saved. You were out there with these demons or satanic devices looking to destroy you. You were out there without a shepherd, Jesus Christ. This is who you were. You were abandoned. You were alone. You were hopeless. You were without a savior. This is all of our states. Every single one of us here, this is our state. Let that sit in for a minute. Hopeless, abandoned, the threat of being without the good shepherd. Let that sit in for a while. Your soul was in danger. Let that sit in for a while. Let that sit in for a while. And then let's get to the but. He says, but you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. You've returned to the shepherd. Ultimately, we know him as the good shepherd. You've returned to Christ. You are now with Christ who protects you, who keeps you, and guards your soul. Before salvation, we were lost. Now in Christ, we have the grace of God. And a part of that grace is to be able to call 
our Lord, the good shepherd, the protector, the watcher over our souls, the one who keeps us to the end, the one who perseveres us to the end, the one who empowers us believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, I have to take my seat, but I'm so glad that he loves me this way. And what a perfect demonstration of the love of God wrapped up in the beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, that he sent his son to die for people who deserve hell. And if you are a believer in this place today and you see this passage and you see the suffering, the hurts, the affliction, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and you still go on, living like there is no victory in Christ, living like there is no guardian of your soul, living like you don't have an inheritance, then you, my friend, are doing the Christian religion a disservice. If we are saved, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we love him and as we say we do, then we imitate him. We line up under him. We submit to him in obedience, and our lives demonstrate that. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, help us all today. For indeed, you are a mighty, good God. We indeed don't know why you bore our sins, why you took the wrath of God, but we thank God today for sending his son. We thank God today for the love that is poured out. It comes oozing out of these scriptures, revealing to us the character and the nature of our God. Let us this day follow this character in obedience of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.